0: Good morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading for this morning, I'm going to actually change it. So if you could turn instead of John 1, you can read that one later because it certainly uh, intersects with our sermon passage for this morning. But I want you to turn to Acts chapter 8. And if you don't have a Bible or if you're using the Pew Bible, uh, you can find our passage on page 917. 917. Acts chapter 8, and we'll read verses 26 through 39. And if you wouldn't mind, please stand, join, join me in honor of God's holy and precious word. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. This is God's Word. You may be seated. All right, so if you could turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. We're going to be looking at the last few verses of chapter 52 and the whole of chapter 53. So as far as the book of Isaiah is concerned, this is probably one of the most well-known passages. And we've been walking through Isaiah, and so if, if you were here, you can... how the anticipation is building because this really is there's a reason why this is a famous passage it's because it should be (laughs) Um, it's a climactic passage so as you're turning there I want you to just consider um, a couple of stories here you may have heard the story about um, the POWs who were forced by the Japanese to build the railroad from Thailand to Burma um, including the bridge over the River Kwai maybe you've seen that movie So over 16,000 prisoners died along the way. They were subjected to horrific living conditions, abuse, and torture. And one story has become somewhat famous. Um, Maybe you've heard this. So after a long day of forced labor, um, the tools were counted and a shovel was missing. So obviously they counted the tools because if someone's tried to, to escape, it'd be helpful to have a tool to help in the escape so they wanted to make sure they always had all the tools at the end of the day. So the guard you know, heard this and just went ballistic, and he ranted and raved, and he threatened to kill all the men if no one owned up to, to uh, you know, stealing this shovel. And this was no empty threat. I mean, people were killed at the drop of a hat um, during this time. So one man actually stepped forward and said, I took the shovel and the guard just mercilessly beat the man and finally killed him, and the the rest of the men were released to their quarters. Well, the tools were later counted again, and it was discovered that there was no shovel missing. The tools had been miscounted. So this man had simply given his life to save his fellow prisoners. So imagine that you're one of those prisoners on that railroad line, And how would you feel about what this man had done for you? And then imagine how if you had actually made it out of that prison camp and made it home, do you think a day would go by without thinking about this man's sacrifice? And if you enjoyed any moment of your future life, you would owe it to this man's sacrifice, right? Well, that's not the only story like that. There's another one. that survived from the horrors of the Nazi concentration camps. So there was a man named (laughs) Maximilian Kolb. He was a Catholic priest. And there's a man named uh, Louis Below who tells the story. I'll read it here. In order to discourage escapes, Auschwitz had a rule that if a man escaped, 10 men would be killed in retaliation. In July 1941, a man from Kolb's bunker escaped. The dreadful irony of the story is that the escaped prisoner was later found drowned in a camp latrine. So the terrible reprisals had been exercised without cause, but the remaining men of the bunker were led out. The fugitive has not been found, the commandant screamed. You will all pay for this. Ten of you will be locked in the starvation bunker without food or water until you die. So the prisoners trembled in terror a few days in this bunker without food and water, and a man's intestines dried up and his brain turned to fire. The ten were selected, including, I'll try to pronounce this name, Franzizek, Gajad And he was imprisoned for the Polish resistance. So he couldn't help a cry of anguish. He said, "My poor wife, he saw, my four children. What will they do?" And so when he uttered this cry of dismay, Maximilian stepped silently forward, took off his cap, and stood before the commandant, and said, "Let me take his place. I am old. He has a wife and children." Observers believed in horror that the commandant would be angered and would refuse the request or would order the death of both men. The commandant remained silent for a moment. Amazingly, he acceded to the request. Apparently, the Nazis had more use for a young worker than for an old one and was happy to make the exchange. So we'll call him Francis, was returned to the ranks, and the priest took his place. Francis later recalled, I could only thank him with my eyes. I was stunned and could hardly grasp what was going on. The immensity of it. I, the condemned, am to live, and someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me, a stranger? Is this some dream? I was put back into my place without having had time to say anything to Maximilian Kolb. I was saved, and I owe to him the fact that I can tell you all this. The news quickly spread all around the camp. For a long time I felt remorse when I thought of Maximilian. By allowing myself to be saved, I had signed his death warrant. But now on reflection I understood that a man like him could not have done otherwise. Perhaps he thought that as a priest his place was beside the condemned men to help them keep hope. In fact, he was with them to the last. Makes us think of Jesus' words, Greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. So it's pretty powerful stories, but they're only nightlights compared with the sun of another substitutionary sacrifice. And that's what we read about in Isaiah 52 and 53. So let's read these verses together. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So again, in the flow of the book of Isaiah, things have been building up. Okay? The anticipation has been repeatedly built. The question has been repeatedly raised, How is God going to do the things that he's promised to do? Just look back um, at chapter 51. We considered this last week. Look in verse 22. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people, Behold, I've taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. How's that going to happen? How does he just do that? Is it arbitrary? And so if you, if you step back and look at the scope of the whole book, it's kind of begging the question over and over again, how is God going to take this rebellious group and be gracious to them without being unrighteous? I mean, how can you just pardon guilty criminals? without being unrighteous. So Isaiah 6, again, big picture, you have God in his holiness, and then Isaiah is just undone because he knows how unholy he is. He's unclean. How can atonement be made? How can God bless and comfort and restore his sinful people? That's the question that's been kicking up Time after time after time, and here is the answer. Behold my servant. So we've been, in one sense, kind of left in the dark as to how this is all going to be accomplished, and then we turn the corner to 52.13, and all of a sudden there's a spotlight turned on, and it shines on this mysterious figure, and all of what's been recently promised is going to come through this mysterious servant. Or you could flip it the other way and say none of the grace and the promises that have been given are possible without this mysterious servant. So let's look at this mysterious figure here in 52, 13 to 15. This is point number one on the outline. Behold my servant. So obviously we all know. This is a central Old Testament prophecy. It's of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior and the King. But just think, this was written something like 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This is just some really enigmatic, mysterious stuff, if you think about it. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, which has the connotations of being successful He's he's going to accomplish what he sets out to accomplish. And he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted, which that makes sense, right? In the context of Isaiah, the king of kings is high and lifted up in chapter 6. So no surprise that his servant would also be high and lifted up, right? So his success, his exaltation, that's not too surprising. What is surprising, as we read on, is how that exaltation is going to happen. So look at what comes next. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. In other words, this servant who's high and exalted is going to be so marred, so disfigured, that people might wonder if what they are seeing is still human beyond human semblance. Verse 15, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So again, more surprising turns here. You see the flow of thought. As many were astonished, so many nations shall he sprinkle. You see that? So somehow the extent of his suffering corresponds with the extent of his impact, his influence. As many were astonished, so shall many be sprinkled. So what's this whole sprinkling thing all about? Well, that's priestly language in the Old Testament. Okay, So it's used in the role of the priest in making atonement for the people. You can look at Leviticus 16 later, but the high priest would sprinkle the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant with the blood of the sacrifice. Day of Atonement, right? And that blood would atone for, cover the sins of the people. So this servant is going to function like a priest and he's going to sprinkle not just the nation of Israel, but the nations. Again, strange. This servant is marred beyond recognition, which actually would make him unclean and unfit to come before God. Right? At least in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And yet, this unclean one, so called, will sprinkle many and cleanse the nations. So, his uncleanness didn't defile him somehow. Instead, purity and cleansing is moving from him to the many, to the nations. So, this is surprising, it's shocking. Even kings will be dumbfounded. What is that all about? Well, kings at that time were the patrons of wisdom. So the point is that the wisdom of the servant and the shocking things that he does will shame their supposed wisdom. This is, like, this is kind of like a plot twist that leaves you speechless, which leads us right into the opening of chapter 53 because this servant is unexpected He's mysterious, he's unexpected, and then he gets rejected. Look at verses 1 to 3. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, again, mysterious, unexpected stuff. Who's ever heard of this? Who would have ever guessed that if the Lord rolls up his sleeves and bears his mighty arm to show his strength to deliver, that it would look like this, marred beyond recognition? What's this? The omnipotent strength of the Lord looks like abused beyond recognition. What? Look at verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So this servant in some senses is just nothing special. I don't know what kind of conception of Jesus during his earthly life you have, but if we could actually see, if somebody had taken a picture of Jesus with the disciples, I'm sorry, but we would not have been able to pick him out of the crowd. If you did, you got lucky. Okay, there was no holy glow. There was no aura over him. And he certainly wasn't the best looking of the bunch, even though you know, it's usually the guy with the perfectly manicured beard and the uh, feathered hair in the movies or in the pictures, right? with his sharp features. Being externally impressive would not, would have not only missed the point, it would have detracted from it. Which, by the way, being truly human has nothing to do with external beauty or impressiveness. Not only did he come in an unexpected way, he was also rejected. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed his not, him not. So this is, this is the anointed one. This is the Messiah, the long-awaited king and deliverer. Again, we have this like storybook expectation. And certainly they did in the Old Testament and even today. But here he comes. He's despised and rejected. He was not esteemed. People ultimately did not think highly of him. People turned their faces away from him in disgust. And then he's sad. I mean, isn't a great leader always optimistic and, and buoyant? A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? I mean, sounds like he might suck life out of the room rather than breathe life into the room. Really? Is this the one we want to follow? No, no, no. The point is, he's not transferring his sorrows and grief to us. He's taking our sorrows and grief on himself voluntarily. So let's look at his voluntary and vicarious work in verses 4 to 9. Point number 3. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs, our griefs, and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So we think there's something wrong with him. God's obviously stricken him, smitten him, afflicted him. He's cursed. Ironically, we're right in one sense. Yes and no. You know what I mean? He was indeed stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but it wasn't as punishment for his sins. It was punishment for ours. Look at verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Did you notice that in verses 4 and 5, it first says that he bore our griefs and sorrows before it talks about our iniquities, our sins. Did you ever notice that? It's interesting. So primarily, he bore our sins because that's what would damn us. That's what we needed taken out of the way. But how sweet that he leads out with bearing our sorrows and our griefs. Talk about identifying with us. How sweet and sympathetic is this servant to not just bear our sins but to bear our griefs and our sorrows he knows he cares he bears our griefs and sorrows he's the sympathetic high priest verse 6 all we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned every one to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all he was oppressed one translator says, uh, translates that he let himself be brutalized. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is the central figure in the book of Isaiah. In fact, the central figure in the Bible, and yet he's silent. He doesn't announce himself. God the Father announces him through his prophet. And he goes to the slaughter in silence, in meekness, resigned willingly to the will of his Father. That is the power of God revealed. He's bearing his arm. This is the power of the gospel, power through weakness, victory through apparent defeat, conquering by being crushed verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? These passages, I mean, in a sense, we're just kind of like scratching the surface here. These passages are just soaked and dripping with gospel grace and truth. Just One little place we can dip down here. Look at that cut off language. The servant was cut off out of the land of the living. So, what does that mean? Well, he basically suffered the ultimate exile. So, Adam and Eve, when they rebelled, they were cut off and they were sent out. They were exiled from the garden. When the Israelites were rebellious, they were exiled to Babylon. They had to leave the promised land. They left their homeland. They were alienated from their homeland. And so this servant is cut off. He suffered the ultimate exile in order to accomplish the better exodus, freeing us, so that he could bring us home. So cut off that we might be grafted in, brought home. Verse nine, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. How can one die a condemned criminal's death and yet be given a rich man's burial? Kind of crazy. Again, this passage is filled with mystery. That how else is it unveiled until it's actually fulfilled? Jesus did and die death. Did indeed die the death of the wicked, like a condemned criminal for us. He's buried, though, in the tomb of Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea. You can look at Matthew 27 and see it. So let's just step back for a second and see what's going on in these verses. Do you hear all of the substitution language repeatedly in this passage? Just You can see it in concentrated form in verses 4 to 6. Look at it again. I'll emphasize it as we read through it. Surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. That's all we add to the equation, is rebellion. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So this is why at the heart of the gospel, theologians speak of, Substitutionary atonement, or penal substitutionary atonement. There's a penalty that sin deserves that we must pay. I mean, we know this. If if you get in a car accident, you you just can't sweep that thing under the rug, right? Somebody's got to pay, and that's just a silly little. I mean, it's not a silly little. It can be like a fender bender can be a relatively small thing, but someone's got to own that debt that's created. Right? So penalty, substitutionary, someone in our place, atonement, covering that, paying for it. So sin deserves death. We must pay. We can't pay. And instead of eternal debtor's prison, which is what we deserve, God sends his son to take our place so that we can be reconciled to God to the father have peace with him that's atonement that's what happens as a result of atonement our sin and guilt totally covered totally transferred to jesus he bore the wrath of god against sin we receive the pardon and peace with god instead i love this quote by ray ortland listen to this every one of us needs a scapegoat in the gospel jesus says to us i am the willing scapegoat of the world At my cross, it's my professional business to be crushed under the unbearable guilt of others. It's my role to bear away other people's guilt. That's what I do because I love guilty people. If you'll trust me, here's the deal. My only guilt will be yours. I'll take yours. And your only righteousness will be mine my righteousness to you. Is that arrangement acceptable to you? (laughs) Or will you continue to cope with your guilt by your own devices? The only barrier to being awash in freshness and joy and release is when we cling to our guilt by clinging to our own righteousness. All our guilt must go to Christ and all our righteousness must come from Christ. End quote. This is all voluntary. Jesus did it willingly for us. It was the Lord's choice, not ours. It was his idea, not ours. Look at verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. This is no mere human plan. This is no tragic death. This servant did not die some unfortunate death at the hand of his enemies. Divinely intended, God's eternal plan, the will of the Lord. Let's try to make this more practical as far as how we operate on a daily basis. We need this so badly, (laughs) not just to become a Christian, and we certainly need that. So if any of you are trying to bear the weight of your own guilt or try to pay for it, try to try to deal with it some other way than Jesus, it's a totally futile cause. And here he died for you, and you can give him your guilt and take his righteousness this morning and become a Christian. But those of us who are Christians also need this, and we need it all the time, so badly. This is not like a one-time inoculation. Or this you chip there, I don't know. Think about it. Just think about this. Why are you and I so quick to blame shift? You did, that, did you do that at all this past week? Why, why are we spring-loaded to do that? Why are we so committed to defending ourselves? Did you defend yourself at all this week? Why are we so defensive? Touchy, defensive, insecure. Why are we so quick to judge others and strictly? We're so strict with our judgment of others. And why are we so quick to excuse ourselves and we're so generous and understanding with ourselves? Why is that? Is it possible because we can't bear the weight of our guilt? So we try to, we work really hard to avoid that weight landing on us because we know that it'll crush us. But we don't have to fear (laughs) having to bear the weight of our own guilt, do we? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed, so we don't have to shift the blame anymore. We don't have to defend ourselves. We don't have to be defensive. We don't have to be so quick to find fault in others. We can be quick to own our sin and call it what it is. Al Mohler at uh, that Together for the Gospel conference um, that uh, happens every other year, so this is back in 2006, he said this, I remember him saying it, and such a helpful comment here. Most Americans believe that their major problem is something that has happened to them and that their solution is to be found Within. That's ubiquitous in the magazine articles. The self-help stuff. In other words, they believe that they have an alien problem that is to be resolved with an inner solution. What the gospel says, however, is that we have an inner problem that demands an alien solution. A righteousness that's not our own. So that is true not just before we become a Christian, it's also true every day of our lives. Every day we tend to look out and point the finger or look out and get jealous or we look out and we're self-pitying. If we try to bear the burden of our guilt and shame and failures, we will become insufferable people. We'll be self-righteous, critical, self-pitying, and complaining. But if we believe the gospel that Jesus has borne our burden and taken it away as far as the east is from the west, then we will become humble and gracious, grateful and content people. <laughs> and oh, how we'll be free to love. You see it? Like, Think of those, those prisoners of war that were set free. So our predicament was eternal debtor's prison. We owed a debt that we could never pay in a concentration camp of cruelty to a master who loved to remind us of our failures and keep us down and in the dark. Domain of darkness, Satan loves to do that. He's the accuser. He loves to point the finger. You're hopeless. But the servant came on the scene. And he stepped forward and he took our place. And so if you've repented of your self-justifying efforts and trusted in him, then he alone can, he alone has borne your guilt away and made you right with God. So let me just read a couple of, there's three of them here, quotes of just how sweet Substitutionary atonement is. Okay, so first Spurgeon, he says, Oh, think that he who was the master of all heaven's majesty came down to be the victim of all man's misery. All for us. Or this guy named Derek Bingham, I don't know who that is. He wrote this I gave him a crown of thorns, he gave me a crown of righteousness. I gave him a cross to carry. He gave me his yoke, which is easy, his burden, which is light. I gave him nails through his hands. He gave me safety. He gave me safely into his father's hands, from which no power can pluck me. I gave him a mock title. This is the king of the Jews. He gave me a new name and made me a king and a priest to God. I gave him no covering, stripped his clothes from him. He gave me a garment of salvation. I gave him mockery. He gave me paradise. I gave him vinegar to drink. He gave me living water. I crucified and slew him on a tree. He gave me eternal life. It was my sinfulness that put him there. It is his sinlessness that puts me here. And then Martin Luther. Learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me what is yours. You have become what you were not so that I might become what I was not. Amen. Bear, you always say amen in all the right places. Love that. All right. Amen is right. So finally, point number four, all this is true because his voluntary and his vicarious work was effective. Effective. This wasn't just, you know, good hopeful plan, hope it works out. This was effective. Look at the last three verses here, verses 10 to 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So who are these offspring that he shall see? It is those who are accounted righteous by his righteous sacrifice. It's no futile effort. He won't miscarry in this. He will have the spoils of his victory. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. This is like an image of conquering, winning a battle, and gaining the spoils. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So you see all that effectiveness language? All those shalls. (laughs) He shall do it. So think back to the beginning of the book of Isaiah. Chapters 1 to 5 show how insolent and rebellious the people of God were. And then God the king shows up in chapter 6. So they're so unholy. And then Isaiah the prophet encounters Yahweh the king and he is totally undone. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. He's just coming apart at the seams because he knows how unclean and unholy he is. And then what happens? The seraphim, the burning one, this angelic being brings this coal from the altar and touches his lips and atones for his sin. And then what does Isaiah do? He says, here am I. Send me. I'm so glad you got me out of my predicament. So how's this atonement going to be available to the nations? Only through the servant. So we all need that Isaiah experience by seeing the servant high and lifted up on the cross. That's some of the shocking turn in the book of Isaiah. The Lord is high and lifted up and he's the king. And the next time you hear high and lifted up, it's in chapter 53. And how was the servant lifted up? On a cross. For us, John twelve thirty-two. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So, John Oswald writes this: God's power is at its greatest, not in his destruction of the wicked, but in his taking all the wickedness of the earth into himself and giving back love. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. So I don't know what your problems and struggles and trials and temptations and sorrows and hurts were this week or the things that have kind of been on the front burner lately or maybe even your whole life you've struggled with certain things but I do know that this this is actually what we need So what I need we need the gospel he was crushed so that you wouldn't be he bore your burden so you wouldn't have to any longer. That ought to change every day of our whole life, just like Maximilian Kolb changed Francis' life. Not a day would go by without him thinking of that man with gratitude. And, and maybe some survivor's guilt, maybe he had that. But the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus is infinitely greater. So Think about this, just a little comparison, because first, if you actually emotionally kind of put yourself in either of those stories, you would realize how that would just change everything, right? Well, what if the story is infinitely greater? Then it ought to actually impact us that much more, you see? So let's compare them a little bit here. In both of those stories, an innocent man actually died, innocent, relatively speaking, as far as he didn't do anything to deserve to die in that moment. An innocent man dies in the place of another or others who are not deserving of the death that was threatened. It was unjust. These threats of these you know, POW guards or the concentration camp guards or whatever, it was unjust, the threats. In the gospel, Jesus is perfectly innocent, and he dies for us, and we're guilty. We're not innocent. We are deserving of that death, unlike those men on the railway or Francis. In both of those stories, the enemy is actually this evil third party. So it's the condemned and the substitute that are under threat from the same enemy, Well, in the gospel, guess what? We are the enemy. And still God sends his son to die for his enemies while we were still sinners. God demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. So the sacrifice also, in the case of that railway prisoner thing, it delivered from the immediate threat, but you know, some of those guys died. Some of the ones that were saved died on that railway railway road. The sacrifice of that man did not ensure the future life and freedom of all those for whom he died. In fact, they had to continue to live in slavery for quite a while longer. And then the death of these men delivered one or maybe a small band of men, and his very death meant that he could save nobody else. So Jesus' death on the contrary, was sufficient to sprinkle and cleanse and bring atonement to the nations. And just like Isaiah, when he knew the freeing power of atonement, he said, here I am, send me. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Here I am, send me. Well, when we experience Woe is me, I'm undone. And we experience it again and again and again. Oh, my goodness. I am so upset about this thing that's happening. It's a flea bite in comparison to what I deserve. Jesus, you stepped forward as my advocate, as my substitute, and you said, here I am. Kill me. How can we not say, here I am. Send me to go and tell others of this, the greatest love that the Son of God laid down his life for his enemies, that they might become his friends. So let's close by singing that song, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all when I survey the wondrous cross.